2 Corinthians chapter 11. Let's pick it up with verse 16. And you're going to notice some very interesting language from the Apostle Paul in this section. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 16. We're going to read down through chapter 12, verse 10. Again, I say, let no one think me foolish, but if you do, receive me as foolish, so that I also may boast a little. What am I saying? I am not saying as the Lord would, but as in foolishness, in this confidence of boasting. Since many boast according to the flesh, I will boast also. For you, being wise, so wise, tolerate the foolish gladly. For you tolerate, tolerate if any, anyone enslaves you, anyone devours you, anyone takes advantage of you, anyone exalts himself, anyone hits you in the face. To my shame, I must say that we have been weak, been made weak by comparison. But in whatever respect anyone else is bold, I speak in foolishness. I am just as bold myself. Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so. In far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes, Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren, I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? If I have to boast, I will boast of what pertains to my weakness. The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I am not lying. In Damascus, the ethnarch under Aratas, the king guarding the city of the Damascenes, in order to seize me, and I was let down in a basket through a window in the wall so... I escaped his hands. Boasting is necessary, though it is not profitable. But I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or out of the body I do not know, God knows, such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I do not know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. On behalf of such a man, I will boast. But on my own behalf, I will not boast except in regard to my weaknesses. For if I do wish to boast, I will not be foolish for I will be speaking the truth 
but I refrain from this so that no one will credit me with more than he sees in me or hears from me. Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. And he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected in weakness. Most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Let's pray. Our Father, we read through this section of your precious eternal word and we find ourselves scratching our heads, seeing that this response to adulation, this response to boasting, this response to weakness is foreign to our instincts, foreign to our intuition, foreign to the way our world sees internal and external character. We pray now that as your servant, Dr. Hughes, comes to open this word to us in a way that would penetrate deep into our hearts, that we would be receptive, that we would see how you see, understand how you understand, and that you would reorient our thinking according to your will because we've heard your word. We pray this because of our access to you in Jesus. Amen. Well, it's a joy again to hear from Dr. Hughes. Well, thank you very much, Pastor, for the reading of the Word and uh, for all the warmth and uh, just sense of community that uh, I've sensed here this morning. This has been really wonderful. Uh, last night, uh, as you know, we talked about the, the whole pillars of success, and uh, there's going to be a question and answer time after this session this morning, so you'll, you'll have questions from last night, questions from this morning, and other questions, and uh, the pastor and I are going to sit up here and uh, field your questions, and then we'll go on to the, the final session on what, what I would call bibliology, what you need to believe about the Word of God. Also, uh, since I'm preaching from the ESV, uh, that's a translation I use, and we just had it read from the, uh, from the AS, yeah, yeah, NASB, uh, you'll find that some of the clauses are reversed a little bit, but the vocabulary is the same. They're both literally based translations, so just follow along with it. Uh, we're preaching the same exact thing and really the same text. Um, and again, I, I want to take a minute to pray, so join me in prayer. Our Father, uh, the great theme that we're going to see is that your strength is made perfect in weakness. 
And uh, certainly, anyone who stands to minister the Word of God, any pastor, does not want to rely on his own strength, his own abilities, anything that's gone before, but totally upon you, because you delight to show your strength in our weakness. And so we pray, Father, this morning as we're gathered to hear that uh, your word would uh, fly through this room like arrows, penetrating where you would have it penetrate to do your work, to um, have those arrows tipped with grace, so to speak, and that this would be really good for hearts here this morning and good for the body of Christ and uh, an elevation of understanding of how you work and how you think. And so, Lord, we pray for the ministry of your Holy Spirit. Would you speak to each one of us? We thank you, Lord, that your Spirit makes intercession for us with groanings that cannot be uttered, for things we cannot articulate. We pray, Father, that your Spirit will intercede and be pleased to do a mighty work this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, good to see you here. I'll try to get you awake. Um, you, I got to congratulate you for being out here early in the morning. Now, as you just heard when your pastor read the word, the boasting of the apostle Paul was required to do was a matter of painful awkwardness to him. He didn't like to boast. And uh, here in 2 Corinthians 11, as was read this morning, when Paul's opponents, the super apostles, boasted about their ethnic and religious superiority, Paul reluctantly responded by reciting his own transcending pedigrees, which then he quickly turned into an extended boast in his own weaknesses in that litany of sufferings that he went through in chapter 11. It was so read this morning. And now in chapter 12, and that's our text, chapter 12, verses 1 through 10. In chapter 12, as you begin there, we see the same hesitation as Paul is called to counter his opponent's boast in their ecstatic spiritual experiences by describing his own surpassing experience. And uh, when you look at the opening verse of that chapter, you can sense his discomfort and reticence about boasting in the opening verse of chapter 12. As he says, and I think he says it with a kind of resignation, I must go on boasting. That's verse 1. Though there's nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. Though he is naturally doubtful about what that kind of sharing will accomplish, he fully understands the dangers of default, of not boasting. And so he's going in his kind of his own soul to play the fool. I'm going to boast further. And very significantly, he will not waste time telling of lesser phenomena, but will cut straight to his visions and revelation of the risen Lord. He just goes for it. And not unsurprisingly, Paul's boast in his 
incredible revelation accorded him will be followed by an even greater boast, namely in his weaknesses, Paul's greatest boast of all. So the Apostle Paul opens with a kind of bare-bones, minimalist description of his personal rapture into the third heaven, into paradise. And so I'm, I'm looking at verses 2 and 3 again. The clauses are a little bit reversed. But he says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up in the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up to paradise. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And he heard things which cannot be told, which man may not utter. Now, what you'll notice in the text here is Apostle Paul twice refers to himself in the third person with almost identical phrases. But there's no doubt that it's the Apostle Paul himself, because when you get down to verse 7, he switches to the first person, identifies himself as the recipient of those surpassing revelations. But his, his use of the third person, a man, I know a man, signals his discomfort and embarrassment in indulging in ecstatic biography, which he deems of little profit. Very fact that mentions 14 years earlier, 14 years earlier that this had happened and Paul had told no one in 14 years about his personal rapture, his private experiences meant that he considered sharing ecstatic biography irrelevant and unimportant. Because 14 years earlier, it would have been around A.D. 42 when Paul was in Tarsus or Antioch before his first missionary journey. And obviously, this being caught up in the third heaven, this rapture had been given to him to prepare him personally for his first missionary journey, his epic journey. But he believed that talking about this kind of experience, this rapture, would not be a profit to others because he would have shared it otherwise, just like he did his experience on the road to Damascus, which he talked about repeatedly when he met the Christ on the road to Damascus was saved. But he'd never told anyone about this. Now, Paul's experience here of rapture had been thoroughly Ecstatic. It was an ecstasy. So ecstatic that Paul didn't know whether he'd been caught up bodily like Enoch and Elijah or whether it was just some sort of out-of-the-body transport of the human spirit. All he knew is that it had happened to him and he'd been there. And it was absolutely stunning what he'd seen, what he'd experienced. Now, when the Bible talks about the universe, biblical cosmology views the heavens as threefold. First, the first heaven is the atmosphere around us. Second heaven in biblical parlance is, uh, is the, the 
the abode of the stars, so to speak, universe as we think of it. And the third heaven is the very presence of God. And, uh, and that parallel designation, paradise, seals it as a locus, a special locus in the third heaven where God abides. Paradise occurs in two other places in the New Testament. Two other places. One is Luke 23, 43, when Jesus, hanging on the cross, turns to the thief next to him and says, today you will be with me where? In paradise. That's, that's one place. The other is Revelation 2, 7, where it says, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So scholars like Philip Hughes hold that these three mentions of paradise in tandem with Jesus are mutually defining and that paradise is not only the very presence of God but the very presence of Christ in salvation history. And so Hughes writes, the apostle was caught up as far as the third heaven. This signifies the height or distance of his rapture. Also, but not separately, he was caught up into paradise, and this specifies the depth of his rapture and is a more precise disclosure of the particular part or nature of third heaven where he was taken. So there, in the paradise sector of the third heaven, Paul saw the resurrected Christ. And there he saw the souls of the redeemed at home with the Lord, awaiting the crowning consummation of their salvation, the bestowal of their glorious resurrection bodies as a new heaven and a new earth are inaugurated, and all God's purposes are fulfilled. And he is absolutely dazzled by what he sees. I think if you could have seen the lenses of his eyes, you'd have seen all this flickering before him, the presence of Christ, of the redeemed host. Absolutely astonishing what he saw. And there, in the paradise of the third heaven, he heard things that cannot be told which men may not utter. Now, what's going on here? Well, what he heard was beyond utterance, but not because the words were unintelligible or there was anything wrong with Paul, but because God had forbidden Paul to speak of him. Paul understood every word that he heard in the paradise of the third heaven. He understood the discourse that was going on, but they were private. They were given to him for his own personal edification and comfort. They were for Paul alone. Now, what an awesome transcendent experience. I mean, we have some, some descriptions in the Revelation that are ecstatic, and I can think of Moses on Sinai, but this is the most amazing thing that's been granted to Paul. 
And you have to say, but why? Why was it given to Paul, especially if it wasn't to be shared? Why was it so awesome? And John Calvin supplies the answer, and I'm quoting him. It was for the sake of Paul himself. For one who's had such arduous difficulties awaiting him, and Calvin says, enough to break a thousand hearts, required to be strengthened by special means that he might not give way, but might persevere undaunted. I just want to stop and say here that what was read in 2 Corinthians 11 this morning, there is nothing like it in literature. People have died for Christ horrific deaths. Uh, this last year, people in Iraq and Syria have died horrific, unspeakable deaths. But if you're talking about a life of continual suffering, there is nothing to compare with the Apostle Paul outside that of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And here's what I say. You know, as it said in that litany this morning that uh, five times he received 40 stripes or uh, 39 stripes, 40 minus one. Five times. You know what that was? That was a synagogue punishment administered by the Jews. What happened is when the apostle Paul, who would go into a city, would go to the Jews first. That was his commitment. So the first time he went into a city where there was a synagogue and he gave them the gospel and they rejected it, they would take him out and they would beat him 39 stripes to with an inch of his life. He'd have to recover that, heal up, and go on preaching to the Gentiles and Jews in the city. Then he would go to the next city, and guess where he went first? To the synagogue. And got beaten to with an inch of his life. I think after one or two of those things, you might say, Thank God, go to the Gentiles first. But not the Apostle Paul. Five times over 200 stripes. And I want to tell you, this is in A.D. 53, 54 that he wrote this. He still had a decade of ministry beyond him. I don't know how many more beatings he took for Jesus. Three shipwrecks. And then he got his licks from the Roman lictors when he's beaten with rods. That was the Roman punishment. I, 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 there is no life that has an epic history of suffering for the gospel to, to compare with the Apostle Paul in all of history. He is the great hero outside of Jesus Christ of the New Testament and also the Bible. And I would really say of world history. This is amazing. See, what was given to him was an epic experience for an epic life to sustain him. But it was for him, Paul. Now, I want to say that most people, had they been granted an ecstasy like Paul's, wherein they had actually been raptured to paradise, to God, to Christ himself, 
to the souls of the departed and heard the discourse of heaven, most people would scarcely be able to contain themselves when they got back. I mean, today they'd write a bestseller. My rapture, personal account of my trip to heaven and back. Seminars on five steps to your own rapture would be sold out everywhere. Their words would be um, accorded sort of a divine a divinity to their words. In fact, you could build an entire denomination, a whole Christian movement on your rapture. I mean, you could form a university. Rapture University. Rapture you would be the record, the uh, the uh, you know the the cry of it. However, from the evidence of the text, it is certain the apostle Paul would have taken the story of his rapture to the grave, were it not for the compelling necessity to feel like a fool and boast about it to the Corinthian church. Isn't this astonishing? And now, as he does reticently boast, it is so modest and restrained that he continues still in that self-effacing third person in verses 5 and 6. On behalf of this man, see, he's the third person, I will boast, but on my own behalf, I will not boast. Then he says, except about my weaknesses... Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I'd be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me and he hears in me. So he's saying, though, that he would be completely justified in boasting in his amazing experience. He forgoes doing so, and he boasts in his weakness. Now, this is very important. It's a little aside right here, because doing this, Paul ensures that the authority in the church would not be based on subjective, ecstatic experience, but on the example and words of its leaders, not on some claim to an ecstasy or an experience. He forbids any assessment of himself in his ministry outside of his words and his action. And I want to say that is essential wisdom for navigating the currents of the modern church. We have to understand, regardless of how great a personal claim is made by someone to visions and ecstasies, nothing can replace speech and conduct or authority. You need to understand that because they're out there with their experiences. Now, up to this point, he's been boasting of the third person, but, and it's been opaque and so on. But now he switches to the first person. He becomes absolutely clear. And the essence of Paul's thought now in verse 7 is that the revelation accorded to him was so exalting that it was so awesome that he needed a humbling thorn in the flesh, verse 7. So, to keep me from being too elated, too puffed up 
by the surpassing greatness of the revelation, a thorn was given to me in flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being too elated. Now, note this very well. Paul's thorn came to him after the surpassing great revelations and in consequence of them. Isn't that fascinating? You know, as to what that thorn was, you can only conjecture. Uh, some have speculated the thorn was the opposition, uh, like the, the Judaizers and apostles. And, uh, you know, that's, that's metaphorical for people that are causing you trouble. And I think I know about some thorns. I've had those kinds of things. I mean, that's a nice metaphor. I don't think that's what it is. Others have said it's a specific ailment like poor eyesight, Noting that Galatians 6.11 records Paul writing a large handwriting there. But I really think he just took the pen in hand from his scribe and emphasized what he wanted to say in large letters. And the speculations run wild as to what that thorn was. Um, some say it was uh, earaches. Another person says it's gallstones. If you had one... Okay. Um, dental disease. Sir William Ramsey, a great old uh, uh, New Testament scholar who traveled the area of Pamphylia and got malaria, was sure it was malaria, recurrent malaria. That's what it was. And we don't really know. I had a pastor's wife tell me once after I preached on this text, he said, she said, I know what it was. It was his wife. Um, <laughs> She said it, I didn't. Uh, but I, th I think the fact that we don't know what it is, is is a beautiful thing because it allows us to kind of put ourselves in here with the thorns that we have, debilitating and sometimes humiliating. I think it's a good thing. But the truth about the thorn, which we all should know, is while the thorn was Satan's work, it was God who allowed it. Just as God was the one who was responsible for the ecstasy of Paul's rapture, ultimately in his providence, he allowed the agony of the thorn. Because divine wisdom determined the thorn was what Paul needed, because without it, the apostle Paul would have been, become impossibly conceited. Uh, that's, that's hard for me to think of Paul being impossibly conceited. But that's how awesome that experience was. And actually, that thorn was proof of the transcending superiority of his experience when raptured in the presence of God. What a stunning rebuke to the super apostles who worshiped wealth and well-being and who viewed affliction and weakness as the absence of God's blessing. Paul says, no, my afflictions and my troubles are signs of God's blessing and his hand in my life. It doesn't suggest that he enjoyed them. In fact, in verse 8, it says, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. So he wasn't any masochist saying, you know, afflict me, Lord, I like it. 
uh, he wanted desperately to have it taken away. He wanted the removal of the thorn. And here his trio of prayers three times refers to a singular event in which he pled passionately with Christ three times that the, Lord, that the thorn would leave him. And he, he consciously saw this as his own type of Gethsemane paralleled to Christ, where Christ asked that the cup would be taken away, and the Father said no. And here he asked Christ to take away the thorn, and Christ lovingly says no. The thorn was never taken away from Paul. And we have to take this to heart. Whenever Christ says no to our desperate, passionate pleadings, the no is freighted with his perfect, compassionate goodness and love. That thorn. The Lord's answers to our prayers are never negative, except in the superficial, temporal sense, but they are fully positive, bringing God's unending blessing. Now, Jesus, no to Paul. I'm not going to take away the thorn which I gave you in consequence of the blessings brings you to the high point of the entire letter. And that is in verse 9, the beginning of verse 9. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. In your case, Paul, with the thorn that you have, my power is made perfect in weakness. Philip Hughes writes, this is the summit of the epistle, the lofty peak from which the whole is viewed in proportion. From this vantage point, the entire range of Paul's apostleship is seen in focus, his calling, his conversion, his weakness, his trials, his labors, his conquest, his exaltations, all fall into place. I want to stop right here because I want, I want us to do something. The grand theme of this letter, and mark this and take it to heart, is that authentic ministry, as he describes it, or new covenant ministry, is that God's power is made perfect in weakness. That is a great transcending theme of 2 Corinthians. And I, I want you to take your Bibles and just follow with me and note these things. Turn to the first chapter of 2 Corinthians. I want you to see this because this is absolutely stunning. Power in weakness. Uh, you get a hint of it in chapter 1, verses 8 and 9, when Paul says, For we do not want you to be ignorant brothers or uninformed brothers of the affliction we experienced in Asia, for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. He says in Asia, that would have been Macedonia, everything was so awful, we thought we were going to die. Now, when you listen to all those litany of sufferings, it must have been horrible, terrible. 
But then he says in verse 9, Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. We thought we were going to die. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Death, a sense of impending death, utter desperate weakness but that was to make us rely on the power of God who raises the dead. That's what he's saying. Now, look across the page to the second chapter, verses 14 and following. I want, uh, and I want to say that oftentimes this is read as if the, Paul is talking about riding in the chariot victorious with the general. That's not what he's talking about here. He says in verse 14, But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved, among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance of death to death, the other a fragrance from life to life. What's he talking about? He's talking about a Roman triumph when the victorious general would come back to Rome and be accorded a parade. And so the general would uh, have his face painted purple like Jupiter, the god of war, a terrifying purple. He would ride standing in his chariot, oftentimes his chariot uh, pulled by four elephants, pachyderms. Behind him, great carts carrying the gates from cities, beaks from ships, gold. Behind that, the prisoners being led to death. While around them, priests with censers filled the air with incense. So he's not talking about a victorious parade, but he's talking about being led as a captive to death. But he says, that wafts the power of the gospel out to the world, to those that are dying a fragrance of death, to those that are being saved of life. So great power comes out of being led as a captive for Christ. Then look down at chapter 3, verses 4 through 6, where he says, Such is the confidence that we have through Christ towards God, not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God who has made us uh, competent or sufficient to be ministers of the new covenant. He says, there's no weakness in myself. I mean, no power in myself, all weakness, no sufficiency, but our sufficiency and our power comes from God. Now, turn over to chapter 4. Famous text. Verse 7. But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. He says our jars of clay speak of our humanity. That's what we are, jars of clay. Metaphors for weakness. We have this in our human weakness so that surpassing power might be of God. 
And then Paul goes on to say in the following verses as he has these paradoxes, we are afflicted in every way, speaking of weakness, but not crushed, power. We are perplexed, indicating our weakness, but not driven to despair, power. We are persecuted, again, weakness, but not forsaken, power. We are struck down, again, weakness, but not destroyed, power. One of my friends who uh, has taught Greek for a number of years got this great paraphrase from Merle Tenney, and he translated it, squeeze but not squashed, bewildered but not befuddled, pursued but not abandoned, knocked down but not knocked out. And then he goes on in the following verses to give the example of Jesus and his weakness and his power, always carrying in the body the death or the killing of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our bodies. That's weakness and power. For we who live are always being given over to death. That's weakness for Jesus' sake. So that the life of Jesus may be manifested in our mortal flesh. Power. Weakness, power, weakness, power, weakness, power. Then you look over at the sixth chapter of this great theme of 2 Corinthians of our weakness as a platform for his power. And as he talks about his ministry, beginning at the end of verse 3 and end of 4, and talks about all the miseries he gets through, he gets down again to these contrasts of weakness and power. So in verse 8, Middle of verse 8, we are treated as impostors, weakness, yet true power. As unknown, weakness, yet well-known power. As dying, weakness, yet behold, we live power. As punished, weakness, yet not killed power. As sorrowful, weakness, yet always rejoicing. As poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing, yet possessing everything. I mean, Paul reaches for the language to make his point. And then, as you move through the epistle into chapters 11 and 12, as the pastor read them, where he talks about all that suffering and all that weakness, at the end of that, in chapter 11, verse 30, Paul says, you see it? Chapter 11, 30, if I must boast... I will boast of the things that show my weakness. You hear that? That's what I'm going to boast in. Now, there's something that you won't notice here. Verse 31 of chapter 11 is an oath. He says, The God and Father of the Lord Jesus, he who is blessed forever, knows that I'm not lying. Now, Paul rarely takes an oath. The Bible warns against oath, but here he swears that he's telling the truth. And then he tells something that a Greco-Roman man would never tell, which demonstrated his weakness. He says in verse 32, at Damascus, the governor and king, under King Aratos was guarding the city of Damascus in order to seize me, but I was let down in a 
basket, literally a fish basket, through a window in the wall and escaped by hands. An ignominious escape from the city in a smelly fish basket. No one would ever tell about that. That's a demonstration of my weakness. I know you won't believe it, says Paul. So I testify to God that I'm telling the truth. This is astonishing what Paul's doing. And then, in our text, we come to the very height of the text, as we said in verse 9, when he pleads to have the thorn indicative of his weakness taken away. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Anybody have a red letter edition here? What color are those words in? Red. They're, they're from the lips of Jesus. They're dominical. It is a quotation from Jesus. Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Do you see what Paul has been doing here? I mean, the mass force of these eloquences ought to descend upon us with massive power. And then, when he says that, then you come to something he really does want to boast about. The greatest boast ever. Look at the last half of verse 9. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. That's his boast. In his weakness. Now, this is so utterly beautiful. I I don't want you to miss this. First of all, notice there's no reticence in boasting here. There's no sense of of playing the fool. There's no sense of shyness. There is what, what, what you could call is total enthusiasm, existential eagerness. I will boast. And so he joyously boasts of his thorn and of his beatings and of his hardship, and of sleepless nights, and his hunger and thirst, all the things that demonstrate his weakness. Why? Well, you see, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And brothers and sisters, this is so unutterly beautiful, I don't want you to miss it. I think when, uh, Pastor, when you read that, so that the power of Christ may dwell upon me, uh, rest upon me. Uh, the word, the word that's used here, is the vocabulary of the tabernacle. Right out of Exodus forty verse thirty four, dwell upon me. It is the same word that Jesus uses in John one four or about Jesus when the word became flesh and dwelt literally pitched his tent. So what he's really saying here is so the power of Christ may pitch his tent, dwell with me, or if you really want to get it, camp with me. He camps with us in our weakness. That's what it says. He camps with his people in their weakness. And I want to say that life is not as it appears today. We're led by today's culture to imagine that God pitches his tent with his specially famous and powerful. Uh, To those that uh, can speak of ecstasies 
and miraculous power and command large crowds and jet from city to city and spotlight and center stage. But it's not so. Christ pitches his tent with the weak and unknown. He pitches his tent. He camps with the suffering shut-in. He camps with the anonymous pastor and missionary. He camps with godly, quiet servants in the home and in the marketplace. I mean, look at verse 9 again. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may camp rest upon me. Isn't this something? Now, you got you to get Paul's attitude here. This is not a despairing attitude. There's his disposition, which is absolutely amazing. In verse 10, you get his disposition, his mind. He says, for the sake of Christ then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I am weak, what? I am strong. Talk about countercultural. When I am weak, I am strong. Now, I want to say, just so we don't get some sort of uh, weird thing going here, there's no value in the endurance of hardships and dignity themselves. There is no virtue in suffering. But when it's for Christ, there's a special contentment being endured for the sake of Christ. And this is because he understands, Paul understands perfectly, and he's taken to heart the paradox of power, for when I am weak, I am strong. For when I am weak, I am strong. And the equation, the spiritual math is never my weakness plus his strength equals my power. It's my weakness plus his strength equals his power. The paradox of power, for when I am weak, then I am strong. And I want to say something that you may have never thought about. God doesn't need our perceived strengths, especially if that's what we depend upon. He doesn't need our strengths, the kind of things that we think we're good at and uh, we can give to God because we're good and we're, we're self-sufficient. Uh, I have a, a quotation from Oswald Chambers, which I have had done in calligraphy, and I, I keep, see if I can find it here, I keep uh, in my room. And here's what Oswald Chambers says. God can achieve his purpose either through the absence of human power and resources or the abandonment of reliance on them. All through history, God has chosen to use nobodies because their unusual dependence upon him made possible the unique display of his power and grace. He chose and used somebodies only when they renounced dependence on their natural abilities and resources. 
That's total truth. Um, let me give it a little lighter thing. Anybody ever heard of Vance Havner? No, really. Pastor has. He used to speak at uh, Moody Pastors conferences in years past. Little man, uh, a great Southern Baptist preacher and evangelist with incredible gifts. And in his uh, biography, he writes this about his life as an evangelist. Here I was about to begin a full-time traveling ministry, which meant sleeping in a different bed every week, changing food and climate, always getting adjusted and never getting adjusted and utterly exhausted before I started. That's the life of a traveling evangelist. It is. He said, any advisor would have called it surest folly. I felt more like quitting instead of undertaking a most demanding work which many strong men have tried and been unable to continue. Then he gets down to it. If there ever was a chance to prove that God's strength is made perfect in weakness and that when we are weak, we are strong, this was it. And then vintage Vance Havner. The Lord had the strength and I had the weakness, so we teamed up and it was an unbeatable combination. The Lord had the strength and I had the weakness and we teamed up and it was an unbeatable combination. I just want to say... If God is calling you to do something in church within the body of Christ, he's calling you to do it. I mean, you're not imagining. He, he wants you to he wants you to take up this work. He wants you to do this task. And you don't feel adequate to do it. Well, if you team up with God, his strength and your weakness will be an unbeatable combination. So don't beg off because of your weakness. Give it to God and be used by him. And then I'll just say this. God doesn't need our perceived strengths, as I said, if we depend upon them. He wants our weakness. He wants our sufferings. He wants our inadequacies. He wants our disabilities. He wants our failures. He wants our fears. Brothers and sisters, I've just given uh, you this morning the, the pure truth of 2 Corinthians. This is what it's about. I would say that in many Christian circles today, it's like the 2 Corinthians wasn't in the Bible. But it is. And this is God's Word. He wants us to embrace our weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon us, that he'll pitch his tent with us, Christ in, a, in us. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. That's all I'll boast in. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice him to his blood. But he said unto me, my strength is made perfect in weakness than the boast. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses that the power of Christ may camp with me. May he camp with you to the glory of God. Amen.